now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan with extremely special Antipodean guests Elisa Krasenstein and Sean Williams on a State of Australian SF edition of the Coot Street Podcast! Antipodean, Jonathan? Yes. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, well, anyway. Dude, you're a professor. You must know what Antipodean is. That's the problem. I'm a professor, and I know why I know what it means. Yeah, anyway, yeah. that's something I would say. Good um, man. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, um, Elisa and Sean, for joining us because you're probably already embarrassed and fleeing in the other direction. Uh, <laughs> it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, <laughs> it's very I, exciting uh, to be here. <laughs> we're very excited to have you because uh, we had, uh, oh, since I'm an outsider, literally, uh, and have no business in this conversation. I decided to go back and look at what I'd what I'd written about Australian science fiction over the years, and I was telling Jonathan this just before uh, the podcast, and I found that a cluster, and this was partly Charles Brown's enthusiasms, and it was partly the Worldcon, but around 19, between late 1988 and early 2000, everything Locus was talking about was Australian science fiction. There was uh, uh, Jack Dan and Janine Webb's anthology, Dreaming Down Under. There was a big uh, David Hartwell tour anthology with, with Damian Broderick, which was timed for the Worldcon. There was a history of science fiction that came out from Van Eiken and uh, uh, Sean McMullen and I think a couple of other people. And Jonathan, you were doing the year's best uh, uh, at, at that time as well. So it looked like Australian science fiction was ever, and Greg Egan was at that time the hottest writer in the world. So it looked like Australia was where it was at. And I was actually saying things like that. And there were also a few Australians on the covers, too. Mm. Garth was on a cover in the 90s in there as well. Well, Sean, you were, uh, you were showing up with some brilliant short stories in all of these anthologies. So that has to be close to the early part of your career as well. Yeah, it was. It was. And uh, uh, I, started it, I started trying to sell stories in 1990. So 90s was my decade. Um. <laughs> and mine too. I mean, I started yeah. publishing it in 1990. Uh, in fact, if you were to sort of break us up generationally, the three of us who are Australians here, to step out of my role as uh, co-host of the podcast for a second, uh, probably Sean and I start around the same time. And then there's a generation in between, which I tend to think of the, as the Cat Sparks a Gog generation. And mm -hmm. then there's Elisa's generation who come along in the mid-2000s, about two, four, six, 2005, six, right, Elise, is around then? Yeah, that'd be right. And then are, are, are the, the predominant generation and are yet to have been sort of overtaken and made obsolete like the rest of us. <laughs> We're due for a comeback, I think, Jonathan. <laughs> is that how, a, a reunion tour? <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh. But anyway. But so, it does it... seem that way, doesn't it? It does seem like, uh, and of course, there was a generation before that. There was uh, Damien Broderick, uh, Damien Broderick uh, Terry Dowling's generation that were... Um, maybe seven to ten years before us as well, and saw us as the interlopers, the new blood, the the wunderkind appearing out of nowhere. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what you 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 all think about this, but one of it seems to be one of the roles of a new generation of anything is to kind of almost like erase the history that happens before them for a while, because they're taking up all of the attention, all of the oxygen in the room, for a bit. And I know that you know when I look back and I would you know summarize Australia's history of science fiction, they're sort of like the post World War Two sort of you know, paper, you know, sort of paper shortage boom of local magazines that comes and goes. And then there's 
a few things in the 60s. Then you get the first World Con and a, a flush in mid-1975. And, and Australian SF at that time was small enough that each World Con seemed to be the major um, motivator for the next phase of Australian science fiction. So the 75 World Con gave rise to the group of people who were showing up in 85 for the second Melbourne World Con, who went on to form, you know, Aphelion and Omega Science Digest and those sorts of things. And to some degree, that same enthusiasm rolled into the beginning of Aurealis and Eidolon. Then you had the third World Con, which is where the stuff you're talking about, Gary, comes from. I mean, Centaurus, mm-hmm. the Broderick... Um, the Broderick Hartwell anthology was published to, to do with the 1990 World, 1999 World Con. Um, I think a GOG started around the 1999 World Con, if I recall correctly. Um, I, you know, Eidolon was coming to its end at that point. I mean, there's a question in my mind, as well, and I'm, I, I will, I'd like to get to this, as to whether the 2010 Melbourne World Con actually had the same effect or not. But I'm curious, Elisa, we're talking about stuff that's pre-your time. Yes. What's, your, what's your view... Looking back from when you started in Australian science fiction, as to what came before, for as a, as a starting point, since that seems to be where we're at at the moment in the conversation. Oh, uh, I probably a gog. I mean, a gog would be what I. Um, I mean, Cat showed me everything she knows, so Twelfth Planet kind of came out of that, and also Asim, because mm-hmm. that's where I came from. Um, and, and before that, I'm going to tell you probably fantasy. It would be what I would be aware of. I mean, obviously, because I'm doing my PhD at the moment, I've done a lot of the research into a lot of the works that you're talking about, so I sort of feel a bit more familiar with it now. But when I was starting, it would have been a gog and, yeah. So would, would you have start, started encountering Australian science fiction and fantasy around, what, the mid-'90s, the 2000s? Oh, no. Uh, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm getting outed. No, that would be the mid-2000s. I was reading international stuff before that, yeah. I, I was in a similar situation, of course, but earlier. it wasn't. I didn't really just became aware of science fiction and fantasy being published in Australia in the early 90s until I started trying to sell it. And then yeah. once you become uh-huh. aware of what markets are out there, then you start mm. seeing what's being published. And there might have been books – well, there were certainly books that I hadn't realised were Australian – uh, that were Australian that were suddenly on my radar. Yeah, uh, I don't know whether that happened with you, Elisa, but it certainly. Yeah, happened to me. I, I think it's. I think I'm just suddenly feeling very sad and depressed because I think Australian fiction doesn't have at all a profile here. Even if you happen to be a fantasy science fiction reader, I'm just thinking. I've just had a baby. Um, I fell into a mother's group where I live. I thought everybody's going to think I'm weird. Uh, it, it turns out that they read science fiction and fantasy. They've just never heard of Australia, so they're going through all my backlist now and all, you know, reading Kirsten McDermott and, and so on. And it's like, oh, but where do you find this stuff? It's not really easy to find. You wouldn't even think it existed. See, the thing there is I would not expect them particularly to have heard of um, Kirsten McDermott or a group of other people. But, but what I would have expected them to have done if they're interested in reading fantasy in Australia is to have heard of the writers who came out of the mid-'90s boom because mm. there was – Two kind of booms that happened around the same time for similar reasons, but it were quite different to experience. There was a small press boom that came out of the post-1990 group, and there was Eidolon, Arealis, Ophelian were publishing. They published not the first, but at that time, the most the most important group of uh, major small press pu- you know, books, with Terry Dowling's first book, George Turner's short story collection, uh, a Sean McMullen book, Books of Yours, Sean, and others. Yep. But at the same time, a couple of years later, about 1995, HarperCollins fire off the Voyager imprint, which subsequently has gone on to become the name of uh, HarperCollins' international fantasy imprint. But it started yeah. in 1995. It was started by mm-hmm. one by the name of Louise Thurtell. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And whilst they had some interest in fa- in science fiction, they very quickly moved towards fantasy. They'd been influenced by the Pan Macmillan fantasy of the early 90s, uh, where they were publishing Tony Shilito and others through that imprint. Uh, but you know, Voyager came along and they discovered Sarah Douglas, who went on to become one of the three or four most commercially successful genre writers to come out of the country. That's right. And they also published my first novel. They I published mean, I, your... I mean, oh. they, they kickstarted my professional career. I mean, yes. it wasn't to the same degree of success as, say, Sarah's uh, was, but uh, they published my first two. My, well, they, they ended up publishing like 25 novels of mine under the, the Voyager imprint. Mm. So hugely influential on me. <laughs> well, yeah, and, 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 and I think I mean, uh, and, the, 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 the trade level of, the, of science fiction in this country, you know, because I, I think they became the, you know, the, the mainstream of that for a good chunk of time. And I think they were prepared to wear, like a lot of publishers, I guess, they, my books didn't sell as well as Sarah Douglas's book, but they kept publishing, I think, because um, they thought it was important to publish stuff that was recognisably Australian, like my fantasy work, or recognisably science fiction, even though it didn't sell as much. And I, and I, that's one thing I loved about the Voyager line, that they were trying to feed back into the culture of the genre instead of just publishing books that sold. Although, of course, it was important that they sold books that sold as well. So, <laughs> Sarah, Garth, etc. Yeah, but they engaged. I mean, because I mean, well, Harper started Garth's career, I think, with uh, yeah. Lou Sabriel in their in their young young adult imprint, but not Voyager. That's but they right. All, they also published. You know, they, you know, they were sufficiently commercially successful, and they brought in both male science fiction writers at the time, like like yourself, like Simon Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also brought in. I mean, they they pioneered Sarah Douglas. That's around when Tracy uh, goes blank. Harding, Harding started her Harding, career. Yeah. I just don't read her much. I blanked on her, uh, and led on to. I mean, it was also around the same time that there was the you know the George Turner Prize was launched, which gave us uh, Tansy Rainer Roberts, and I think Maxine MacArthur went through that as well. And so there's a, a bunch of things happening, and there's a, a a real it seemed like a roll of the dice. Publishing was was pre the digital age, so there was lots and lots of bookstores everywhere in the country. There was a desire by imprints to sort of make money off this fantasy stuff, particularly. And I think that he had a huge impression, you know, a huge um, impression. Because one thing that I think is true, and I'd like to s- see what you both think about this generationally at any po- point. What will dominate in terms of what is written, yeah, is what publishers are willing to publish. Yeah. Mm. Right. So at a small press level, there was whatever Peter McNamara at Aphelion was willing to buy in 1995. There was whatever Cat Sparks was willing to buy in 2005, and there's whatever you, Elisa, are willing to buy in 2014. At a broader publisher level, there's whatever Louise Thurtell was willing to buy in 1995. There's whatever Stephanie Smith was willing to buy in 2005, and now there's a bit of a wasteland. Well, let me, let me go all professorial <laughs> on, on you guys for a minute, because as, as, as I suspected, the conversation with it's way out of my depth already. But uh, I, I'm concerned about the kind of literary aspects of this, the kind of literary culture in Australia as compared to other places. Now, if we go back to this period in the 90s, and Jonathan, you and I have talked about this before, uh, it looked for a period of time there like George Turner was going to be an Australian Ian Banks. He had a mainstream reputation. There were writers like uh, Rosaline Love and, and Cherry Wilder that looked like they had kind of Angela Carter-type careers where they could cross genres, Lucy Sussex. Lucy Carter. Sussex, yes. Yeah. And, and they're all terrific writers. Uh, for that matter, you had Peter Carey, um, who yep. 
was kind of like, I don't know, what's an equivalent of the United States? Michael Chabon, a very mainstream, successful writer who seemed to understand what was going on in genre. I remember reviewing his first book, The Fat Man in History. Uh, is that still there? Is there still a kind of open dialogue between the literary and genre worlds in Australia, the way they're sort of kind of is a little bit in the States and sort of kind of is a little bit in the UK? I think writers like Margot Lanigan helps the dialogue between literary and genre fiction publishing. Uh, and it, But it's easy to look at what's on the shelves and assume that there is no dialogue. But you do get writers who are kind of writing in between. Like, well, James Bradley, James, James Bradley's next book um, it is, is coming out early next year. And that is a science fiction novel published by, well, I call it a science fiction novel, uh, published by a mainstream literary, literary publisher. And it'll be marketed that way. And I think books like that exist. And you get wonderful very, very literate writers like um, Kim Westwood and uh, Rurik Davidson and Karen Warren being published by mainstream writers and mainstream, mainstream yeah. publishers. And I think there is still a space for that uh, that uh, that kind of writing, that kind of engagement with the market. But because we have a small market here, I think the risk is that this kind of experimentation can drop away. It can be seen as being unsuccessful and, and writers' careers can founder a bit if they can't then be mm -hmm. published outside. And I think that economy of scale is a real problem for Australian writers who are trying to do something different, trying to... I'm trying to avoid value judgments, you know, commercial writers like me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to say that there's a superior kind of writing or an inferior kind of writing, but I think if you're trying to do something a little bit different, something that is bucking against the trend, something that is more stylish uh -huh. and not not easy to pigeonhole on the bookshelves or come to a wider attention in the community. I think it can be very difficult down here for that, which is the role that the small press plays here. It's why the role the small presses here is so important uh, for covering that kind of area when it fails elsewhere. Does that, is that how you feel about it, Elisa? Is, does that... uh, I think that's certainly really true, but I'm also finding that small press is stepping up into a second bigger role, which is that due to the scale um, there are a lot of writers who are starting to drop out just because suddenly they're not um, commercially viable, even when they're not seen as a commercial, you know, they were mm. taken on to be commercial, but I'm mm. finding a lot as now falling down towards small press, which kind of in a way would be pushing us out of what would be traditionally small press, both in the kind of material that you might be able to buy, but also hopefully the kind of print runs, not that they are serious, print runs even by like US small press standards but that there's st there's starting to be um a blurring of the lines between I think what um what Voyager might print and what small press might print it's feeling like everything's really in flux um but then then you just don't have the reach that a big big publisher has so is there a case though of, of the you know the large publishers reaching down in terms of the number of books they're willing to publish? I mean, I remember when I did the best of the year in 1996 and 1997 with Jeremy Byrne for HarperCollins, the third, the second volume was the last because it only sold three and a half thousand copies. Right. Now I can tell you they would not cancel that book today. No, that's a great sales figures. Yeah, that'd be a good. Yeah, that'd be healthy. You know. Uh, yeah. It, they're just it's just changed because there's a lot of POD publishing doing small print runs and now you've got these I think slightly questionable from trade publishers digital only in prints that they're doing mm. uh, which I'm less than sanguine about for a few reasons mm. and I wonder if that makes it if if a trade publisher is willing to carry smaller print runs and do digital only 
does that have a negative impact on the ability, Elisa, of independent pro- publishers who are looking to make the tr- transition from micro press to small press to stable independent publisher a lot harder? Uh, well, yes and no. Like, yes, because um, now we're fighting over the same kind of there's a there's a blurring of of what where you might go as a writer obviously because digital only is that is that a traditional big publishing model um but at the same time if you've established what it is that your press does which is something that I'm really focused on doing then then what we're doing is still really different I think yeah but um, yeah, no, I'm not going to lie. It's pretty hard out there. It's pretty grim. And everybody's kind of fighting over a carcass. Like, let's not pretend that they're not. Well, I, 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 sorry, Gary? <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very simple question, Elisa. Do you, do you consider 12th Planet just idealistic? Is that a good word to describe it? Yeah. Because, I mean, I've talked to uh, – we should talk about this some other time. I, I remember talking um, – to um, uh, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm someone I'm you forgot. Blanking now. <laughs> no, I was, I was uh, um, Aqueduct, uh, Timothy yeah, yeah. Champ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And 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 she's very much an idealist. She believes in what she's doing. She's bringing things into print. I'm not talking about the the new writers that she's printing. She's bringing things into print that are aggressively non-commercial. Um, yeah. Things like the new Amazonia. And she does that out of an absolute conviction that these things need to be made available. Uh, and I know she has a slightly, she has a, I suppose, substantially different mission from what you do because you're talking, you're dealing mostly with contemporary writers. But it strikes me that that's also picking up some of the slack that in the past, um, small university supported presses might have done or small independent right. literary presses might have done. There's a kind of literary history involved in, in what she's doing that I think is important. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, actually. <laughs> well, well, let me just ask you this, Elisa. Do you think that's 12th Planet Press, since it bounces what, what Gary's doing, is basically a political tool that you're using to um, promote feminist science fiction and women in science fiction, which I think is a perfectly laudable thing to do? Yeah, of course, and now branching out to more to be more diverse than that. But, yeah, I mean, obviously why would you be doing a small press otherwise? Like you're on such a small scale compared to a big publisher. You couldn't just be out there um, trying to be commercial, uh, whatever commercial means. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've got to believe in, I've, I've got to believe in every book that I publish and there's got to be a reason why I'm mm. publishing it. And there's got to be a reason why you want to publish with me. And so I think, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's politically driven. Which is fine. I mean, I, I know it's my own belief, and I don't know if you think this too, Sean, but that if you look back at the various decade-long eras of Australian science fiction, that had there been an equivalent press in existence at the time, we would have seen a lot more women science fiction writers published and fantasy writers published, simply because there was a high-profile market to aim for. Wow. Yeah, that's right. I mean, back in the 90s, certainly there were what, two two magazines and then maybe three when ASM started. And uh, I had no idol on what considered diversity to be, to be an issue and was consciously looking for writers of different different stripes. But, uh, but I, I think, again, economies of scale come into this as well. I think 
there's a there's a wonderful feedback loop between the kind of publishers that are available and the number of publishers that are available and then the number of writers that are stimulated to write and submit works to them and as as one rises the other rises in this amazing cycle so back in the day the two magazines that were there could only publish you know 20 30 stories a year mm-hmm. so uh, mm-hmm. and if you if you were trying to write you know the market was very very small and that could be discouraging for some and then in the 2000s there were more magazines more markets more writers had outlets and more access to international markets and now it seems like this incredible rich ecology of of uh, of different kinds of publishers doing different kinds of things and thereby nurturing the growth of different kinds of writers or writers who want to do different things multiple kinds of things across different genres and different kinds of styles and i think i think that's an amazing experience of opportunity and and talent waiting to happen. I, I can't wait to see what the next decade brings based on this. And although there are complicated uh, economic issues that are holding people back and, uh, you know, stopping wonderful publishers like 12 Planet Press from being, you know, as successful as they deserve. But I but I still think it's a wonderful thing that these opportunities exist in a way that they didn't before. Well, I, I mean, I think- well, yeah, okay. but beyond that, I mean, publishing models are changing. And whilst, you know, yes. we could say that we don't like, for example, a digital-only imprint, but suddenly that becomes available, um, mm. that changes the way things And obviously things like crowd um, funding, which some people don't like, but if that then enables you to fund something that you otherwise couldn't afford, that's going to give rise to, you know, the product of all this potential talent. That's right. I mean, as a writer, it's an incredibly exciting time. It's also a very confusing time. I mean, there are some some things that I might want to fund by going through Patreon. There are books that I would like to be published electronic only. There are small, strange little works that will only work in lit online literary magazines. There are there are novels that I want to be published commercially in in areas from YA to you know normal science fiction and fantasy. I think it's terrific that that as a as a practicing writer, I have that choice, and every writer in Australia has that choice now. In a way, they didn't even five years ago, 10 years ago, let alone 25 years ago. It was unimaginable well, let, back let, then. Let me check your experience against what I got, gathered from reading the story introductions to some of these anthologies. Uh, the sense I got from uh, people, this is coming from the late 90s again, was that Australian science fiction as a field didn't grow up with the kinds of mag- available magazines that the United States or the UK had. It seemed to develop, uh, uh, according to these writers' own accounts, in workshops and small press publications and original anthologies. And that's a different, a kind of different training ground for short fiction than you get in commercial magazines. Um, it, it, it sounded like, uh, and Damien Broderick specifically said, prior to 1980 probably, if you wanted to sell stories, you had to ship them overseas, period, and you were in that market. Uh, the younger writers, apparently Le Guin had a workshop that came out of her appearance at the World Kind in 75, 80, yeah. Mm. 75. Yeah, 75. Yeah. It was a, the number of stories that see, the number of writers that seemed to come out of that workshop was fairly impressive. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely true. I think yeah. that was when it was it Petra Smith or somebody came out of that and uh, there was a bunch of stories that were published as a direct result of that. And yeah, it's true. I mean, if you were to sort of very lazily sort of put together a hazy period we would call the Bertram Chandler period where, where Brit, you know, you know, British writer Chandler leaves the UK and comes to Australia and then proceeds to publish from here in American magazines. There was no real Australian pulp magazine market. There were a few yeah. magazines in existence. Uh, most of them were long delayed kind of pulps that were brought in on ships you know, and, and you'd see those from time to time. But actually, getting a ho- having a, mar- a a domestic market, no. I mean, when I look back, you know, there was a, a in the 1960s, I think, uh, John Baxter 
Yeah. And it was like the new Australian book of science fiction or something. It was yeah. something like that. A couple of volumes yeah. of that. And that's the first sort of mark in the sand, if, if, if you like, mm. of starting to see somewhere to sell locally written Australian science fiction. So, yes, they come out of workshops. But the other thing is, and it's a little bit like the US, but also quite different, much more fan-driven. You know, uh, there is yeah. such a you know, interconnection between things like the world cons and everybody coming together for those and the events that happened at them that it, it shows you the tiny population that was actively engaged with it until a certain sort of critical mass period where suddenly, you know, I doubt that anybody before 1980 in Australia seriously ever thought they could make a living uh, writing science fiction. And if they did, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong again, guys, they were children's writers. Hmm. You know, it was Lee Harding writing Displaced Person in the mid-80s. It was Patricia Wrightson writing The Nargon and the Stars and her fantasy novels. Um, and there are people who are obviously completely rejecting being Australian at all because, you know, because the great example of commercially successful Australian fantasy writers is P.L. Travers, you know, with well, Mary yeah. Poppins, who is completely outside most of the rest of this story. It's only around... I think the mid eighties that you begin to think like, Oh gosh, maybe it's possible to get published. Maybe there could be a marketplace. Maybe somebody could make a, a, you know, a living at this. And I could be completely wrong, but I'd say outside the children's market, I bet nobody did until the mid 1990s. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. I, I can't yeah. think of anybody. Yeah. And even then, if you like, if, if you put it at a certain time, the carrying capacity of the, of the domestic market is such given our taste for imported books that you're only going to get, a limited number of people able to make a living. And I wanted to throw it to both of you as well. Do you think that it is really practically possible to make a living as a, as a science fiction fantasy or horror writer in Australia today? And do you think it's dependent on getting out of the, getting out of the country, if you like, to get a broader readership to be able to do that? Elisa, do you want to go first? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, well, okay, I, I think the answer is no. I don't think that you can, not, not writing inside Australia, unless you're writing outside a genre. Uh, and you would absolutely have to reach outside of Australia in genre to make a living. And I think, I, I personally think it will get harder and harder because um, as we democratise uh, publishing, there'll be more books, still the same number of readers, everybody's reading less numbers of the same books. That's yeah. just maths. That's, that's cynical, Elisa. That's that's sad. <laughs> see, I actually, see, I don't know what Sean thinks as well because I actually can think of a, a few people who've done this. So, who uh, made a living from genre only in Australia. But now, who can now, do it now? Yeah, yeah, I can think of a couple. Who are I doing mean, it right now? Just well, from publishing in Australia. I bet John Birmingham, whilst I know he sells outside the country, okay. could make a living based on what he sells in the country. Yeah. Yep. I'd bet. Oh, who's the guy? Andrew thingy, the, the thriller writer. The what writer? Yeah, the, the the Adelaide thriller writer. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. The guy who did um, Ice Thingy. Oh, Michael. Um, Ma Matthew O'Reilly. Matthew Riley. Yeah. Matthew Riley. Matthew Riley. I bet he could. Yeah, and, he and Sarah yeah. Douglas certainly did because she always sold far more here than she did overseas. Yeah. And and I would say maybe Trudy Canavan. And Tracy and, Harding. And maybe and Karen Miller. Yeah. And Garth. Would do all right. Yep. You know, so. <laughs> And, and you know, so, there's, so there's, there's a group, but it's a small group. How about you, Sean? What are your thoughts? Well, Sean has uh, worldwide success. Yeah. What was? Go ahead. Uh, well, I'm, I've I've been following the same strategy I've been following since 1999 when I went full time, and I've stayed full time for 15 years, uh, and that's by writing more than one book uh, across multiple genres per year. 
uh, and diversifying, which is which is hard work and, and maybe a self-defeating strategy in some ways, but uh, I found it certainly very possible. And the other strategy I'm presuming pursuing at the moment, which isn't a, a cynical marketing strategy, but is uh, has become available to me because my young adult writing is suddenly more commercial than it was when I first started doing it in 2000, mm-hmm. is to publish into YA. So my, my serious science fiction novels are published now as young adult novels, and they're paid a lot more highly. Um, because YA is very successful right now, so that's one strategy I'm pursuing. Pursuing, and it works very well for me, and it works for very works very well for other writers too, um, like uh, Karen Healy and uh, Amy Kaufman, who are, uh, are writing science fiction under the young adult umbrella. So I think I think it's possible, and uh, it's it, it's the, the potential is there for somebody to come along and write the next next wall, and they could be from Australia, and we could never have heard oh. of them. And the book could go ballistic through, through Amazon or wherever. I, mean, I think there's there's a potential for. This is the hard thing. We don't know what's coming. We don't know who's out there toiling away at their their new novel right now, which will be something completely different that's come before, or exactly well, the me, same. But we'll just get taken up by the by the masses and become huge. Let me throw out an example just to see if this is analogous at all to Australia. Since Jonathan, I don't think we're ever going to do a podcast on the current state of South African science fiction. But if we did. If we did, we would have to talk about Lauren Bucus. Yes. And here's somebody who wrote a couple of good science fiction novels and a really gruesome thriller, and she has another gruesome thriller coming out, I gather, um, <laughs> who clearly could not have become who she is based on her reputation in South Africa. I don't even know if her books were originally published in South Africa. I think one of them might have been. Um, Moxieland. Is there an Australian yeah. Lauren Bucus? Oh, goodness. Is Max Barry, does he publish well here? Does he sell well here? Because Lexicon was a massive success yeah. internationally. He probably does. He, yeah, he, probably does. he certainly of, won the awards here. Yeah, that got a lot of attention in the States. Yeah, it did. But uh, I still think, I mean, I, th- I think it's possible, but I think it would be really cruel to sell the dream that it's likely. I mean, yeah. you have to work really hard and you have to be really talented, and we named everybody on two hands. Yeah. yeah, you have to be really you yeah. have to be really lucky. That's that's the terrible thing. But well, uh, certainly I think it continues to be true as it was in the past that any single outlier can happen. Mm. The, the the issue isn't so much could a Lauren Bucus come from Australia, as could a whole bunch of them happen. Mm. Is that like I mean, is that even a reasonable expectation in a country of twenty three million people? You know, we, we did a, a po- the podcast last weekend about British science fiction, and there's 65 million or 68 million in the United Kingdom, and mm-hmm. we could carry on a conversation about a group of people who are sort of busy, and they've they got a very geographically condensed group of people, much higher population density, they don't have the same transport issues, they don't, you know, they don't have the same, you know, scale factors, so it's easier, but they've got their particular challenges. Here, with 23 million people, is it reasonable to expect to have a lot more people writing science fiction and fantasy than we currently do? I mean, we've actually got, if we were to sit here and name them, we could name, I bet, 50 people pretty easily. Yeah, without any troubles at all. And we have a generation of, we have a generation of young people who've come up through the the con circuit who are very genre savvy and very connected to you know reviewers and publishers. I'm thinking of Catherine McMullen here, you know, mm-hmm. who whose father was a you know a well-known science fiction writer through the 80s and 90s and has grown up surrounded by writers, has been working in the field on the fringes, like in TV, working on Nowhere Boys, which is a great kids show. You know, she's mm. she's somebody who is kind of primed if she wants to, to write the great breakout science fiction novel of the next generation, you know, the generation of the, the 2020s, you know. And who knows? And there could be people out there who I don't know personally, you know, who are also doing the same thing. And 
there could be there could be two there could be 20 it's it's, it's you don't know what you don't know <laughs> let me ask you both this setting aside everything to do with what's happened before 2000 and say 10 and looking mostly <laughs> mostly forward right <laughs> I'm not sure why Thank you're laughing. You. Yeah. You're, you're allowing me into the conversation. Thanks. <laughs> well, if you, feel, if you feel excluded, it's never been the intention. But okay. <laughs> no. uh, setting aside the past, because that it is that, and we could go on about that for far too long. Um, there is a group of writers, I mean, a lot of them have been showcased in things like The Twelfth Planet, Salisa, who have had quite some success in, in critical terms, I think, particularly rather than commercial terms because there are practical limitations, with the science fiction and fantasy that they write. But I've yet to really produce a major string of novels. Uh, yeah. and, and I could kind of you know, touch on a whole bunch. And one person who I think has already been name-checked in the podcast who we hoped would go on to do that was Kim Westwood. She had The Courier's Bicycle out from mm. uh, Voyager a couple of years ago. And it's a major science fiction novel without any doubt. It's quite brilliant. A world-class book. Yeah. That's, that's not widely enough known, and it will be difficult for anybody on the podcast to get a hold of because it's already been remaindered and disappeared from the world. But if you can get a hold but of it, please But if you really do. want one, email me because I can get you one, but not very many. <laughs> you can hook her up. Hook yeah. them up, okay. I can hook you up, but not very many people. But you need to read this novel, yes. Yeah, yeah so, 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 so this, this, yeah. this great book. Yeah. And we have friends like James Bradley who's got science fiction novel. and blah, blah. But is there a reasonable prospect of these writers having the chance to write those books and to get them to read us. Yeah. Science fiction. Science fiction is so hard. It's really it's hard in Australia so. right now. No, I don't think it's hard to write. I think it's I think I think it's so interesting what Gary was saying before about talking about our history of not having the pulp magazines to come out of uh you know way back when. But what that does is it sort of hampers uh, your access to peers who have come through that. So I feel like in some ways uh, the boom that we're seeing now is is standing on the shoulders of what happened in the 90s because now there are so many more experienced writers out there and editors to uh, mentor the people who are writing now. And so that's why we're starting to see a lot more um, life in our scene. Um, but in terms of science fiction, there aren't that many outlets that buy, as you know, Jonathan, in the terms of the big publishers in Australia. Mm -hmm. And there is a really very specific gap in there are manuscripts out there. I know there are manuscripts out there. I've seen some, but that are lacking what's needed to take them from where they are now into commercial uh, publishability. And we're lacking what's needed to get those manuscripts to that level. Because there are a lot out there, but they require investment and time. Yeah. I think there are two things working against long-term careers in science fiction novel writers in this country. And one is expectations. I think we did have that boom of writers like me who are uh, full-time writers publishing in science fiction. And I think everybody who wants to be like that, look at the examples and thinks, well, it's possible. And of course, it's, it's unlikely and it's hard. And I think if you don't do well after one or two books, it's easy to kind of give it away. I mean, if I had given my novel career away after my first novel, it would have been very easy because I made $2,000 on it, you know, for three hours work. And that's, three that's hours kind of work. normal. That's a quick like, novel even for you. Sorry, what's that? <laughs> that's three hours work. That's quick even for you, Sean. No, three years. Three years, I said. Sorry. I meant to say. 
So I think there is that that sort of balance between expectations of what might be possible and what seems to be possible based on the experience of the people around you versus what the industry is is actually giving you. I I wonder if that's in play. But I also think that there's an there's an issue of editing. There's a the editing and nurturing of new writers. I think there yeah. is a wonderful support in the short story field. There's things like Clarion. There's all sorts yeah. of writers groups, all sorts of online forums, for and and all sorts of wonderful editors that will nurture a short story into its you know, proper shape and really encourage a writer to learn. But as soon as you hit not the novel field in science fiction, I mean, there are good editors out there, but because these books aren't as commercial and don't sell as well, there's not as much time to spend on the books. And what really, in in my opinion, helps a writer grow and, and become, you know, something amazing is that long-term process of learning from an, from an editor. And, uh, and in my experience, that just doesn't happen in science fiction publishing very often uh i mean i'm 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 loving being edited you know just so intensely and so deeply and so so powerfully now that i'm working in the ya field because the editors there work Uh really really hard at you know they have more time they have more money they have much more of a market they can invest months on a single book but in science fiction the turnovers are much more quickly and and it's frustrating for everybody and and i think it's very hard for a writer to learn and develop over the long run i think that's working against them too in this country and possibly everywhere as well do you both think that independent publishers and writers equally can afford the risk of publishing science fiction novels in this country? And what I mean is the investment on behalf of publishers in terms of the money as independent publishers and writers in terms of the time given the likely commercial returns. I would say, can we afford not to? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a deft non-answer, Mr. Very... Mr. Williams. I mean, I, I I don't think we can. I think we should. I think. It, I mean, personally, I, I don't want to answer my question. No, Elise, what, what would you say to that? Uh, I think that um, I think that you're never going to get the returns here. Like ten people are going to get the returns, but how many people are going to want to put in the effort? I, I don't. I mean, do we want do we want to have a science fiction genre in this country or not? I mean, if we don't, then we don't think it's worth the investment. If we think that having that, you know, produced here, local science fiction, then it is worth it. And, of course, I'm an independent publisher who loses lots of money because I buy books that I think should exist. Mm-hmm. The importance and the brilliance of Peter McNamara's Ophelian and why people who lived through that time keep referring to it is that of the 15 or 16 books that he published – the majority of them were novels. That's what he took a risk on. Whether it was, you know, Backdoor Man, whether it was, you know, the Ian Macaulay, Macaulay Hales book, whether it was Damien Broderick, whether it was Sean and Shane, and Shane Dix, whether it was Sean McMullen, although lots and lots of guys, as you can tell. But nonetheless, he was taking a risk on 3,000 copy print runs of novels. Is that something that's not practical in 2014 anymore? Um, well, with POD, it probably is a different equation. In fact, you have taken this risk with Truck Song, the Andrew McRae book you published recently, which is a science fiction novel published by a small press. <laughs> I, I guess my question is... Uh, but just, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's a very niche book. Yeah. It's, well, yeah. what we used to see was a lot of discussion about the emergence of a global literary marketplace where, you know, you could find your... Uh, you could find your market, you could find your audience, you could find people all over the world, especially with e-publishing and that sort of thing. 
And the fact is that it's it's difficult, obviously, for small independent presses. It's difficult for you, Elisa. It's difficult for Timmy Duchamp. It's difficult for uh, Jacob Weisman. But you still have publishers uh, like uh, Peter Crowther in, in, in the UK or or Bill Schaefer here who publish very small editions, publish lots of books, and seem to make a lot of money doing it. Yeah, I would argue, though, that what Bill does is kind of a different niche to what I'm doing. And so I... I Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I can't... There's no tactful way to continue my conversation. But, you know, like (laughs) I think, um, you know... What Bill does is a, is a niche market that he's managed to really tap into, and I think it's a different kind of thing to what I'm doing. But, absolutely. you know, like, you, can, you can reach internationally, absolutely, and now we have digital, so we're not even arguing about whether or not it's more expensive to produce a book in Australia compared to in America, which is a completely different conversation. Right. But, you know, it's the same thing that I've said. You know, you're standing up in a 50,000-people stadium and you're shouting your name and who can hear you. I mean, it's still... You can do it, but it's still there's so much time and effort, not just in nurturing a writer to get them up to the level, but also in building a brand and a recognition so that you can find readers who want to read that that work. There's a question we're going to return to with a British podcast at some point, but I want to touch on it here now, I think, and that is, I think it was definitely true 10, 15 years ago and beyond, but today do you think it's harder for a woman in Australia to get published than, than for a man? And do you think it's harder for a woman writing science fiction to get published than a man? I think in Australia at the moment, it is not harder for a woman to get published writing short fiction. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I can't hear the conversation. <laughs> sorry. All I heard oh. from Elise's answer was... Ah. <laughs> Uh, well, Nina Allen was was was, a, was was I think it's fair to say somewhat incensed about the condition of uh, women novelists, at least in the UK, even getting book contracts. Uh, we discussed on the podcast, for example, that Gwyneth Jones's uh, latest novel in her Boldest Love, a prequel, a, a YA prequel to her Boldest Love sequence, is self-published, and. There was a sense, and I've had this talking to other people in the UK, that that women not women science fiction novelists in the UK are not in a good position right now. That's essentially what I'm hearing from a number of sources. Oh. And I wonder if, the, and you, and Elisa, you were talking about short fiction. Yeah, and not, I think I think there are also some American uh, female short science fiction novelists who have also done the same thing because. If you already have a built-up audience that is basically your audience, you may as well self-publish. Mm-hmm. You're, you're financially, for you, you're going to come out the same, right? Or maybe a bit better. Yeah. Or maybe you bring the book to the attention of people. I mean, Linda Nagata published, uh, self-published yeah, her. Who else? Also yeah. copy, but I, believe it's, I believe there's a print contract for it now. Now there is, yes, but I don't know that there was beforehand. No, which there is, wasn't, no. Yeah, which no. is the answer to the question. And if she we brought- proved she had an audience, right? If we broaden mm-hmm. it to, to, to science fiction and fantasy just overall, do you think it's harder? Because it seems to me, looking around, there are a lot of women being successful. And, and I mean, if you, whether it be Glenda Lark or whether it be Trudy Canavan, whether it be uh, Tracy Harding, whether it be whomever else, uh, 
And that, to me, slightly argues against the feeling that domestically, at least, it is harder. But I don't know if that's a fair impression. Because we don't know how many novels are being submitted. Exactly. No, no, we don't. We never will. No. No. And and also, I'm not I'm not a writer, so I don't know that I necessarily can speak for other writers about how they feel. I think um, I think that's definitely been the way it feels, and certainly for science fiction, I would think it's true. I, I know a lot of female science fiction writers who have moved on to YA or fantasy, for example. Yeah. But then I would have thought that, I mean, my, my impression, again, which may be wrong, is that it's damn hard for anyone to sell a science fiction novel in this country to, to an adult market. Well, where would you sell it, though? I've I, I got to admit, if I had a manuscript, I don't know, I'd be curious, more curious about your answer to this, Sean, but if I had a science fiction manuscript in my pocket and I was a novelist, I don't think I would look here first. No, I wouldn't either. No, no, we probably wouldn't. But if you did, I know Keith Stevenson's Horizon is coming out yes. through HarperCollins Electronic Imprint and Alan yes. uh, uh, Baxter's got a, a, a series coming out, I think, through HarperCollins as well. So I think yes. they're still open to the idea of, of, of science fiction, but of course they're both blokes. So I, if you're a, a woman writer, I'm not sure... I don't know. Well, they did publish Kim Westwood a few years ago. I mean, I don't know if they refused right. to publish a subsequent novel or what the story is. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think by any means that, and again, I'm not the best person to comment on this, but I don't get the, get, I don't get the impression that a lot of the challenges facing women have gone away. Mm. Uh, and I don't know whether it's the, the fact that it's harder for everybody, so some of that kind of balances, and also the fact that people like Elisa at, at 12th Planet Tahani uh, with her, pup, her her press, and even some ways, you know, Russell over at Ticonderoga have published a lot of fiction by women, and you've got Patty Jensen, is it, publishing, self-publishing and whatever yeah. else, that gives the impression that there are more women around, and so that things are better than they were. I think, I think we'd be hard-pressed to argue. But they're not, they're not getting huge advances from big publishing houses, so... But are many people... Are they getting, well, an advance? <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I'm thinking of Marianne de Pierre's, who's obviously, yeah. I, I've seen an amazing um, excerpt from a science fiction novel that, that she's got that I would like to see published. But, you know, I know that she's, in her science fiction, that's been a struggle. Mm -hmm. It has been a huge struggle for her. And uh, it doesn't seem entirely fair, does it? It's kind of hard no. to understand. Yeah, that's I, right. I think to some extent that is the the heritage of science fiction in general i mean i know uh, personally i know a couple of young female i mean re by my standards really young female novelists non-science fiction novels 40 advances in excess <laughs> of two thousand dollars um and uh, fine more power to them um but the uh but the concern i guess is is, is not getting those best-selling advances uh there's 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 also the kind of literary reputation that you get making a career as a as, an, as a distinguished science fiction writer. I mean, if you, if you look at people like um, a John Crowley comes to mind, who is essentially a very non-commercial writer. When she was alive, Angela Carter was not a very commercial writer. So there is, a, there, there is that recognition you get from either the literary community or the genre community or that interface of the literary and genre community so that um, so that you do get some recognition. I mean, um, and, and Elisa and Jonathan, at least, have both been recognized by the World Fantasy Awards, which is pretty impressive in terms of the fact that people actually reading these books put value on what you're, what you're doing. Um, that's not ever going to be equated to international bestseller success, and I would argue that it probably shouldn't be. 
Okay. Because Margot gets a lot of that. Margot Lanigan she gets. She does. I mean, she gets. Yeah, I, I was going to say outside of when you talk about literary <laughs> reputations or and, and and outside of you know the hugely successful writers like yourself, Sean. Um, <laughs> well, you are. I mean, you are well, you well. are the most. Okay, see, see, see if I'm wrong about this. It looks to me from a distance <laughs> like you may be the most successful science fiction writer in Australia. Well, it depends what metric you apply. I mean, certainly in terms of numbers. Uh, you know, I'm massively prolific, but uh, but then if you look at it in terms of sales, I've had periods periods as recently as five years ago where everything's going down. So I was I was I wasn't selling very much, and I wasn't being reviewed, and I wasn't being nominated for awards. So and and so in terms of those metrics, my career was failing. So uh, I certainly felt good about the books that I was writing, and still writing books that I love. But I did have that feeling that you know things were going down the toilet. So uh, there is that mismatch sometimes between um, uh, success and perceived success. Making a living from writing is not always enough. As you say, having the respect of the community and having the respect of the field is in some ways more important than sales. But if you have neither, what do you do? And I think that's what happens to some writers who produce one or two really good and well-recognised books. But if your publisher's not buying your third one and your second one didn't get yeah. nominated for awards, what keeps you going? What? I mean, for me, it was just because I refuse ever to do anything other than write books. So I had to write even if I was dying. But if you, <laughs> you know, if you if you're young in your career and you might have a child, or uh, you know, you you might have an alternative. That's the thing. You might have something else. I had nothing else I could do, so I had to keep writing. But if somebody has an alternative, they they drop away and drift away, and that's that's a great sadness for me in the field when you see these young, new, exciting voices come along and then yeah. just. They aren't, they aren't encouraged yeah. or nurtured or, or the, the role of the dice just goes against them and they, they do something else. They perform some arguably more meaningful service to society. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Maybe in my own ignorance, but I was, I was depressed at the number. When I looked at the table of contents of Dreaming Down Under and Centaurus, which was the Hartwell, I, I, was, I was disheartened by the number of people I've never heard of since. Mm. Yeah. But, but I think that would be true if you looked at anything anywhere. I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> unique to us. I think, you know, people do pass in and out. I mean, one thing that I wonder and I'd throw to, to, to you uh, to, to address is, do we have a cohort of senior um, Hall of Fame, if you like, writers in Australian science fiction who are still active and pr prolific? Or is there more of a tendency to pass out of the field as, your, as, you, know, you, as you age? Well, I just think that's such an interesting question because when I was doing the 12 planets, I was like, I can't, how do you come up with 12 women uh, in Australia and who would they be and what spectrum would that be on? And so how do you do that without asking Rosaline Love, for example? And hmm. she had not written in 10 years and oh. she would not have written again, except I came to her and said, will you write me some science fiction? Ooh. And so she wrote me work because I went and sorted it out. That's and so, so shocking. Is that not, and then that book is fantastic. It's witty, it's hilarious, it's cutting, it's her at her finest. That way it wouldn't exist except that I went looking for it. And so it's like, well, people, it's it's not the same, I think. When, when you're a woman and you keep getting knocked back and things don't really happen and people don't really recognize it, you kind of just assume people aren't interested and you wander away and do something else. Mm. Yeah. Although... It's interesting in terms of the, 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 one, the one sort of wild card in this whole discussion com keeps coming back to Margot Lanigan, whose career seems to be the reverse of what everybody else's career is. <laughs> she started out as a YA writer, not gaining any <laughs> recognition at all. And as soon as she started writing these totally weird short stories, 
as soon as she sort of moved beyond YA, even though she kept getting sold as YA, I have no idea why the United States wanted to sell, you know, her short story collections as YA, but suddenly she became a major international force. Uh, other people write very, very challenging literary fantasy stories and don't do anything until they move into YA. Margot didn't do much until she moved out of YA. <laughs> Is she the proof of the maxim, you know, write what you love? I, exactly. I don't know how she thought about it. <laughs> yeah, you got to write what you what you can write. Well, I think she's certainly, you know, a proof, you know, of the, uh, the the Lauren Bucus question that there's always an individual who can defy everything else and be successful, both through talent and personality and sometimes blind luck. You know, mm -hmm. many talented people don't go on to have that. You know. And so there's a question about what makes that. And, you know, I don't know whether, honestly don't know whether men and women are more likely to be discouraged and, and, and leave. I think we have a tendency, and to some degree always have had, but maybe because there are more people involved now, it's, it's, it's clear, you know, clearer, to forget the people who have come before us, whether it is, you know, Leanne Fromm or Rosaline Love or Lucy Sussex as a, you know, as a youngest of that trio. Or whether it be George Turner or Terry Dowling or whoever else, you know, people are set aside as we, as we try to push forward, and I think that weakens us a little bit. I think we need to find ways mm. of continuing to remember those people and keep them active if we can, you know, where they can be, and and you know, and I think we're, we're yeah. I was just going to say that I think um, that, that generation, uh, Leanne and Lucy, and uh, uh, arguably, potentially, and Lisa, you can tell me if I'm talking out of my ass here, but they, they come from a different generation of, of women who are potentially more easily discouraged by, by rejection, whereas I don't see Lisa Hannett or Angela Slater being discouraged by any kind of rejection at all. They're just powering forward, kind of inspired by Margot's example. And I, I, I like, I, am I wrong in thinking that there's a different attitude in young Australian women writers that they're they're not going to be silenced you know that, uh, that there'll be publishers <laughs> like you to support them and there'll be examples like Margot uh, to to keep them writing and keep them moving forward I hope that's true but that didn't feel true when I first started I certainly uh, and to some extent I still do this there's a lot of behind the scenes yelling at people to continue writing <laughs> um, you know because I want to read that, I want to buy that kind of thing. Um, and that said, uh, Lisa and Angela have the 11th volume in The Twelve Planets. I asked them for science fiction because I like their science fiction. And, yeah. and that was hard to get them to write science fiction because, you know, that's, you know, so is the science fiction still a thing in this country? I think it is. But um, I hope that it's changing, at least in short fiction in Australia. Um, I, I've been in contact both with Leanne and Rosaline and I think – uh, it makes me sad that they didn't get as much recognition or perhaps as much encouragement because what could they have spent the last 20 years writing? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I mean, I think the great void, if you look at the history of Australian science fiction, is the gap between Rowena Corey at Corey and Collins and um, Cat Sparks Cat. at Gog. Yeah. You know, there there is a, a vast void there where there wasn't and maybe you know, it, it should not take a woman to be there to encourage women. Yeah? It's no. very funny, but, Jonathan, because a lot of people say, as yeah. I've seen this, you know, oh, publishing isn't sexist because um, <laughs> a lot of the editors are women, so therefore it can't be sexist, right? And that's one discussion. But in in building my database of Australian science fiction, there aren't actually a lot of female uh, editors. 
Certainly not the small press. No, no, not the small press. No. Uh, no. I think if you look at the major markets, that's quite different. It genuinely is different from the certainly from when I first encountered science fiction. All of I, I did. I look back when I encountered, say, Voyager, HarperCollins. Uh, the only ma- male editor I met at that point was the publisher Angelou Lukakis. Everybody else were women that I encountered at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, my first editor at HarperCollins was Anna McFarlane, who went on to become the head of Alan and Unwin's Children's, I think it is, isn't it, Sean? Uh, yes, that's right. Yep. And my next editor, Fiona Fiona Daniels, Fiona, Fiona, oh, for her last name, that's terrible, went on to work at Marie, um, Marie Claire. Uh, and <laughs> Louise Thurtell, who was also an editor I worked with, went on to become a publisher at Transworld and do other things and then become an independent editor and things. So, And, and then Stephanie Smith, who I worked with. Uh, so my own experience was that it was women editors that I kept encountering uh, domestically. Doesn't uh, necessarily doesn't mean that there isn't a sort of no. intrinsic misogyny in the industry. Oh, yeah, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and you know, there's this question. Conversations. And there's a question we were oversimplifying, and I'm going to go back to talk. I'm going to talk to Joe Monty about this in Washington. So you know, I know Joe listens. So I'm going to talk to you about this. And that is, what else in you know, if the editors don't have that are open, genuinely open, and to to everybody, you know, then then what are the other factors? I don't believe it's the marketplace. So there is something in that chain that's discouraging potentially publishing science fiction and fantasy by women. So what actually is it? And I don't know the answer to that question. I'd ask a similar question. I I don't want to shut down this conversation, at least feel free to answer that question if you don't want me to change the subject. But I I would ask a, a similar question. Why aren't we publishing more Australian fantasy? Not just fantasy by Australians, but why aren't we? I've always... This, this question has always puzzled me. Why, why is our fantasy of such an international flavour? Uh, does that make sense? You know, I mean, I started yeah. writing fantasy novels because I wanted to talk about the landscape I grew up in, and it's always, and there are other examples, but it's always puzzled me. Why are we writing about European and American landscapes? And that leads back to that miracle ingredient X or whatever it was that oh, yeah. called it years ago. Is there a quality to Australian fiction that is either being nurtured or ignored or is considered less commercial or more commercial? And, and why isn't there more of it? Or is there more of it now? And I'm just missing it somehow. Or do we want to avoid that topic entirely? Lisa? Uh, I, I, I personally do publish, obviously, a lot of Australian fantasy. Um, yes. Why would you be an Australian publisher if you didn't want to publish Australian work? And yeah, and as a small press, obviously, I want to nurture Australian voices. So that's important to me. I, I, I don't know. I don't read a lot of that kind of fantasy because I don't understand why uh, everything has to be so homogenous. But obviously, it's mm. commercial because that's why. I mean, pu- big publishers buy what's commercial, what they think they can sell. Mm. Yeah, I, I, mean, I find, find it a really sort of puzzling question. How, you, you, you encounter something like, say, Peter Carey's Illywhacker, mm. which mm. has science fiction and fantastical elements in it and is set in an Australian environment. I'm currently reading Peter Carey's next book, Amnesia, mm. which may or may not have a science fictional element in it, but is strongly set in Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne and those domestic landscapes. Uh, you're right, Sean, I can't think post... Well, I mean, Sean McMullen and Terry Dowling did write in Australian landscapes. Yes. And mm. Greg Egan has written in Australian landscapes. And there's no yes. doubt that Kim Westwood with The Courier's Bicycle was writing domestically. I think That's right. if, if it ever comes to fruition, Angela Slatter is writing her, you know, the, the Bris Vegas novel. Yeah, oh, I hope so. Great. Fantastic. 
you know, she she'd had a she had a short story out that screamed for to, to be. I'm trying to remember what was published. That it screamed to be a novel. That's where I thought it was, but I wasn't going to just say. Ah, yeah. Because <laughs> I didn't want to blow smoke up your your publishing house. But, yeah, but just, I mean, there's other examples. I mean, Trent Jameson's yeah. uh, trilogy was set in in Brisbane, and yeah. Narelle Harris's was set in Melbourne. There are examples, but in terms mm. of big fantasy, I probably well also less. there is well, one big science fiction too. Well, see, the science fiction one I've been chafing at because, I mean, there's been a few times where I've seen people touch on, you know, the science fictional future of Australia, but it's something that doesn't get brought, come back to very often, and yet I find interesting as someone, I guess, who lives here. And then there's that other thing which I know everybody's sensitive to, and that is, can you touch the Aboriginal yeah, right. experience, the Aboriginal mythology, mm. which everybody is very understandably and you know, appropriately sensitive about, not wanting to appropriate it. Yeah. I would, I, I would love to see an indigenous writer, you know, write in that area, write a fantasy novel or a science fiction novel using the cultures of, of her background. You know, I think that would be amazing, but uh, I'm not sure if there's the cultural or whatever support to uh, for that to, to be likely in the near future, but you never know. I don't know. One of the things that struck me when I was going back and looking at the late 90s is everybody was talking about Peter Weir films at the time or, or George Miller films, which clearly made use of Australian landscapes. And it seemed to me that that was, and there were there were American novels like Michaela Rossner's Walkabout Woman that used Australian, so so there was a fascination with that. There was a kind of, you know, wanting to see more of that sort of thing. And we saw, you're right, we saw some of it from Peter Carey, uh, but apart from that, it just seems to have been a huge new arena for fantasy narratives uh, that that didn't follow through on it. It, it almost evaporated. We didn't see as a lot of what what we expected to see later on. It's interesting that one of the other things I pointed out uh, in one of these introductions or essays or story introductions I was reading is that prior to about 1970, the view of the Australian landscape that most American science fiction readers had came from Cord Wainer-Smith, who actually <laughs> did live in, live in Canberra for a few years because he was teaching there. Uh, and but, 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 but essentially, there's always been this sense that that is a landscape, that is a fantasy landscape on Earth that is the closest thing that Western civilization has to colonizing another planet within another two, within the past 200 years. And yeah. why haven't we done more with it? <laughs> well, I wonder if it's because most Australians live in an urban, urban environments down the well, East that... Coast, which is not terribly Australian in lots of ways. And I wonder if that's why our writers struggle a little bit too, because we're competing in a, a very internationalized market and... Uh, it's a very small pond with a very that's high bar to get over, and but but that's they're, they're just wild generalizations, and I. I feel sure. like I want to mention the indigenous writer who was the guest at Continuum this year, who does write uh, Aboriginal science fiction fantasy. Oh, you should absolutely. But I can't. I'm trying. I don't want to mispronounce her name, so I'm busy trying to Google it <laughs> and failing, and now not doing my job. That's okay. I just, to sympathize with you, uh, at some future podcast, I want to talk about the Chinese writer who's really good novel I'm reading right now, and I have no idea how to pronounce his name. I'm going to have to ask Ken Liu about it. Well, you can send me that to put on the, sh on the show notes, Gary, and then I can make sure. Uh, you're talking about the, the three... The three-body problem. Three-body problem, yeah. I assume is she's in Liu. But I'm, I have no idea if that's anywhere close. I've now made a fool of myself. No, no, I think it's more important to no, it's it's more important to, to to try and mispronounce a name and actually bring that writer into the, into the discussion and the narrative than it is to shy away from uh, pronouncing it and then actually cut them out of the conversation. 
Well, that's true. So I so, certainly would be much more offended to, to, to have my name omitted than mispronounced. Um, your court. <laughs> Are you talking about Yarachi Green? Is that who you're talking no, about? No, oh, I'm okay. not. That's another cool. example. Yeah. I'm talking about Anthelin. We're not. We're not. Do you want me to put it? Do you want me to put it in the show notes, uh, yeah. Lisa, and just do that? Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. And also the calls breaking up a bit. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, look, uh, there's a couple of questions. There's two questions I'm going to throw to both of you, Alicia and Sean, in a moment. I want you to have a think for a second, because we are beginning to get towards the end of the hour that we have. Yeah. Uh, and those are whether looking forward from 2000 and September, or October 2014, to the next 10 years, you're optimistic or pessimistic for for science fiction and fantasy in the country. And if you can recommend two or three books each that you think our listeners should seek out. While you're thinking about that for a moment, because it is unfair, I should have given you, you that at least part of that <laughs> before the podcast, but it only occurred to me that I, I did this on the British podcast last week, and and that is, Gary, I'll, I'll presage that with my own answer. I'm actually concerned about the business of science fiction and fantasy in the country, as I always have been since I first encountered it, though there was a brief flourishing of great optimistic optimism in the mid-90s. But I'm actually very op optimistic for the next 10 years of Australian science fiction and fantasy. Uh, I'm optimistic because of the, the the range and diversity of writers who are trying to have careers and are sticking to those careers, and because of the energy of the people who are involved. You know, uh, one of the unfortunate things about coming from a small marketplace is you only have a small number of people and you're dependent on their energy for things to be successful. But I don't see the people who are being active now, the Elisa's, the Tahani's, the Russell's and the people at Voyager in their own way and, and Macmillan in their own way and Transworld in their own way, actually giving up on Australian science fiction or, and fantasy. So, uh, and I think you're seeing people having major careers from this country in YA with Sean, with Justine Larbalestier, with Scott Westerfeld, who is now officially Australian because he lived here for a while. <laughs> just <laughs> and, like Jack. Yes, but despite, yeah. Oh, uh, Jack! I mean, see, Jack falls into a very frustrating category because he sort of was incredibly present for a chunk of time and then has been, for other reasons, mm. out of our... Off our radar, and hopefully we'll we'll be back on it sometime soon. But I'm very optimistic. I think you know if I was going to point you to people's books, Kim Westwood's book, I think is one that if you can find it, you should. But that doesn't get past that the fact that I mean I, I've loved the Twelfth Planets. I mean I'm biased with those for various reasons because <laughs> you know I've had some involvement in their past. But you know Love and Roman Punk, Three Spots, Splintered Walls, which is oh, sorry Love and Roman Punk is Tansy Rand Roberts' collection. And it's my favourite books of hers that I've read. And Through Splintered Walls is a Karen Warren collection. Bad Power is a Deborah Pian Cotty book. I, lo I, I loved, I mean, this is sort of blowing smoke, but I love Sean's Twin Maker. Um, Thank you. Uh, I'm desperately looking forward to Clade by um, James Bradley. It's a very, very good book. I think, that, I mean, I've read an excerpt from it, which, which I found, I mean, James is a dear friend, so it's all kind of a very small world in that way. And is at this point in time, I think, editing the book and is in those the deep horrors of self-doubt, but sent me an excerpt that was compelling. It's, and a, it's a terrific book. Even yeah. in first draft, it was a terrific book. It'll be yeah. even better now. You know. Yeah. So for all that, I might get grumpy about Australian science fiction. You know, and also, I mean, Greg Egan has just completed, and he's the, the sort of this this sort of 
person in the room that occasionally, believe it or not, gets omitted for various reasons. But he's just finished, you know, the orthogonal trilogy, which was fabulous. Margot is due to have a new book out probably next year, I would guess, because it sounds like she's been working away on that. Garth Nix has, you know, Clariel just out. And I think that when he's writing in the Old Kingdom, he stands as one of our very, 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 very finest you know, fantasy writers. Yeah. And is criminally, uh, you know, under under uh, appreciated by awards committees. Yes, absolutely. Bafflingly so. I, I even now I sort of I think back and I think, well, Sabriel was up for the World Fantasy Award, right? And then you're going, well, no, no, it wasn't. We met, they managed to like get that wrong uh, and overlook it. So I think that you know, as long as writers are willing to keep pushing against the barriers that that they face. As long as people like Elisa and Russell and everybody else can maintain their energy, then I think this is actually a really interesting time. And I hope and Phil for long enough to give the others a chance to think up their answers. Yeah, yeah. I did <laughs> mention nearly all of mine, Jonathan, and I'll let Elisa go first so she can mention the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Your call cut out when you were giving the premise. What was I supposed to be saying? Oh, goodness. Uh Basically, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic for the next 10 years. Oh, okay. And recommend three books that you think people should look out. And they can even be, to be fair, not ones... So they can even be ones that you published. If you oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm optimistic because otherwise go and do something else. Um, I get to see what's coming in the next, you know, up to three years ahead of time. So there's some good stuff out there. Um, and I believe in our writers. I think I think they are talented and brilliant and imaginative. Um, three books. I'm thoroughly enjoying Twin Maker, Sean. I love it. Oh, thank you so much. Looking thank forward you. to the sequel as well because I love it so much. Um, I I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna suggest that um, these are books that I would like to be written. Can I do that? <laughs> it's a great like, idea. I would like to see a bad power novel. Yes, 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 like absolutely. Yep, and yep. I would also like to see, and this is for Tansy, uh, a superhero feminist novel that comes out of her cookie-cutter superhero story from Kaleidoscope. Yes, that's such a great story. <laughs> there needs to be a novel. And so. you, young Mr. Williams, you don't get to, to escape. <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh Optimistic. I mean, you have to be optimistic, as as Elisa says. If you if you if you don't see a way forward, a way through it, why would you do it? Why wouldn't you yeah. go get a real job that would make a real contribution? Now, I know writing does make a contribution, but uh, you know, in my dark times, I think, why don't I just learn sign language, you know, <laughs> and, and actually make it different to someone's life as an interpreter right now, right here? Uh, no, I'm optimistic. I think there have been more choices. There are more choices now than they ever were before. You know, if when I look back 25 years to when I was started out starting out if i didn't sell to orialis and if i didn't sell to eidolon where the hell else was i going to go if i didn't sell to harper collins no one else was going to publish me in this country that's they were the, my three choices you know and thank goodness for peter mcnamara mm. egging me along now you know there's so many great small presses and so much so many mains the possibility of mainstream publication even though it's still very difficult difficult so i think i mean you there is a larger ecosystem of writers you're competing against but i think that's a good thing too because you know, the, the better people are writing around you, the better you are forced to be. And that's, Definitely. That's yeah. Uh, books that I would recommend, uh, you know, Kim Westwood's um, uh, Karen Healy's When We Wake. Uh, it's, it's, it's YA and it's science fiction and it's also 
extremely, extremely Australian. This is what I think Australian science fiction could look like. You know, it's it's a it's a commentary on our political environment right now, uh, which is fantastic. Nikki Selway's Repetta is a is a is a terrific novel that we haven't mentioned so far, and I think we've kind of covered everything else. Go back and look at Marianne de Pierre's science fiction novels. Mm-hmm. Also, also wonderful. Justine's latest book, um, Razorbill. Razorhurst, which is great, is, yeah. is a terrific novel, and uh, her next book is also going to be extremely good. So I, I want I want a novel from Thoraya Dyer. Uh, Thoraya yeah. Dyer, I loved her book Asymmetry. So I'll plug that. You should totally read that if you haven't already. There's... And, and there's all sorts of people, all sorts of things we've not touched on that people are raving about. Uh, I was just reading a great review this morning of The Godless by Ben Peak. Mm-hmm. Lots ah. of lots of great things said about Rurik Davidson's novel. Yep. Uh, mm. The name of which escapes me right at the moment. Which is terrible. The other half wrapped in the sky, or something like that. That's right. Yes. Is that unwrapped sky? The unwrapped sky. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Um, and people have been raving at me about. Is it the Lascar's Dagger, Glenda Lark's novel? Yep. Meant to be uh, terrific. You know. So there's no, lots that's, of. That's um. No, that's oh, not. Oh. Uh, is this bad? You're that's hear- Satima. It's Satima's novel. We're all looking it up. You can hear us all tapping no, away. No, it was a Glenda Lark novel people were, were raving to me about. It is Glenda Lark, that's correct. Oh, yeah, the, the Lascar's Dagger, yeah. Oh, sorry. That's and then right. it's, its sequel, I think, The Heart of the Mirage, which I think is coming out shortly, uh, I think. And yeah. she is somebody who has really struggled. I mean, she, she has struggled to find a publisher for this book for a long time. Yeah. And finally, it's found a home and getting rave reviews, which is, you know, absolutely oh, yes. superb. Which means that sort of hopefully what we'll see – well, well – Hopefully what we'll see is a situation over the next few years where these books are being recognized. Uh, I know the Aurealis Awards nominations are open right now, so if, if you are eligible, you should think about sort of doing that. If, you're, if you can submit, you should submit. There'll be the Ditmars, and hopefully for, for broader awards, I mean, the World Fantasy Awards and everybody else should be paying attention to what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah, the, the broader popular vote overseas awards are always more of a challenge for Australian writers to get into just because of how widely they're known. Yes. The other unfair question I'm going to throw to both of you is before we wind up and we are winding up and that is, is there something that you feel we should have touched on in this discussion that we haven't yet that we can deal with in a couple of minutes? Sean? Uh, can I throw to Elisa first? <laughs> also, Elisa's much smarter than me and she'll come up with something. Okay, well, that's true. Elisa, since you are much smarter than Sean. So no pressure. Um, no. <laughs> um, I think we probably haven't really touched on the fact that publishing is in flux and things are breaking down the tyranny of distance and whether we think that that might impact on how we are um, going to go forward. Will we always be stuck where we are now um, or not? For, for example, um, pub- on-demand publishing has meant that I can publish uh, Kaleidoscope inside the US and inside the UK with domestic um, postage, um, which dramatically changes what I can do. Mm. And so mm. um, I think I think in terms of being optimistic about what goes forward, I think I think Australia will will be different. I think the landscape will be completely different in ten years. And the other thing we haven't really discussed is um, both Tim Peake and Richard Davidson sold those books to Tor UK. So is that where Australia is going to be looking forward? True. Okay. And I also wanted to oh, mention Amberlyn Kwaimarina is the um, Indigenous writer that I was trying to remember before. Oh, yeah, good. I feel bad for not knowing the work. Apologies. Sincere apologies. Yes. 
And Sean, do you have anything you think we should have touched on? Else? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we okay. covered quite an extraordinary large amount of ground <laughs> in only an hour and a half. It's fantastic. Well, what I think we could easily synopsize this conversation into, you know, a, a bad place. I actually think, I feel, it sounds like we're optimistic. I feel optimistic. And hopefully we'll get to come back and touch on this and also talk to you both individually about the, the things that, you know, you're doing at 12th Planet, Elisa, and the things that you're doing, Sean, in your writing careers, you're continuing with your know, Twin Maker and Crash Land and whatever comes next beyond that. Yep. And with it, that, Mr. Wolf, I think it's time to wrap up. I think we need to wrap up. Although I could go on for a long time asking not too intelligent questions, but earnest ones. So <laughs> with that, thank you very much, Elisa. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Mr. Wolf, till next week. And John. When we will once again be, as we are now, the models of Cood Street.